Today's reading is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadows of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is God's word. Friends, do keep that uh, psalm open, if you would, Psalm 63, that uh, we've just had read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the psalms, and we ask that as we listen and think about this one, uh, it might in some way become our psalm and our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll see that Psalm 63 is headed a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. What does a desert or a wilderness conjure up? in your mind, literally or metaphorically, wild places, lonely places, places without landmarks, places where people are lost and lonely and vulnerable and weary and unsure where they are. We use it metaphorically sometimes. Uh, Winston Churchill in the 1920s and 30s sometimes described as his wilderness years, the years when he was an outsider when he wasn't at the center of power, he was, he was, as it were, metaphorically in the wilderness. Perhaps it may, may make some think of retirement. Somebody who's, who feels lost because they're no longer in the place where, where they've got some kind of status and influence and income and so on, and they're an outsider. Sometimes illness does that to us, and, and, and I feel that I'm in the desert, I feel that I'm in the wilderness, I feel that I'm an outsider, I feel that I'm not where it's happening, I feel that I'm not uh, where things um, that I want to be are, are, are. Maybe a psychiatric disorder, maybe struggling with a depression, a lonely lostness. Maybe someone going through the trauma of a divorce or a bereavement, or some relational breakdown, lost and lonely and vulnerable and weary. The desert probably doesn't conjure up in our minds Images of somebody singing songs of joy. And yet, the psalm that we're going to attend to now is a psalm of a man singing songs of joy in the desert. It is a prayer or a psalm of David. And before we think about how we might make it our prayer, I want us to, uh, as it were, to crouch behind a stone in the desert or a a bush in the desert somewhere and listen to David singing this psalm. 
Though we don't know when exactly in David's life this was, there are two main times in David's life when he was in the desert. The first was, uh, if you're a Bible reader, the second half of of, of the book 1 Samuel, where David has been anointed king. He is the rightful king, but he's been banished by King Saul into the desert or the wilderness of Judah. And he's hunted and lost and, 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 and lonely in that period in his life. It may come from that period. And then there was a later period when he'd been king for some years. And one of his sons, Absalom, supplanted him. And David had to flee from Jerusalem out into the desert or the wilderness um, outside. And it may be from that period. You read the commentators, some think one, some think the other. We don't know for sure. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Here is the song or the prayer of the king who is excluded. He is outside. He is not where he ought to be. And he is in the desert. And as we, as it were, hide behind a book and uh, behind a, a stone or a bush and listen to David, I want us to notice first in verse one David's desire. David's tremendous desire. Oh God, you are my God. And when David says my God, he doesn't, that my is not a sort of possessive pronoun. He's not saying he owns God or has a, any, any, God owes him one in any way. My God is a, is a relationship word. It's a covenant word. The strap line of the covenant in the Old Testament was, I'll be their people and they will be, um, I, I'll be, I'll be their God and they will be my people. So when you, when in the Old Testament you say, you are my God, what David is doing is he's not, reaching out and searching for an unknown and unknowable God. It's not a kind of mystical quest of, of, of human beings searching after the unknown God. David is, 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 is des- expressing a desire for the God who has already reached out to him in covenant. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And that word earnestly has the sense of early or top priority. So David is saying, I seek you earnestly. I have this strong desire for you. I don't have to write myself post-it notes saying, don't forget to seek God today. This is an earnest and early and urgent, a top priority. This is what gets me up in the morning. This is what makes me tick. This is what defines my existence on earth. I seek you earnestly. And then David uses his surroundings as a metaphor. And if you've been in a hot desert like, say, for example, the Sinai Desert or something like that. You've been in a hot desert. You've been in the Sahara, something like that. You'll know that that you can survive without lots of things. You can survive without your iPhone. You can survive even without food for a few days. But water you cannot do without. And if you're in a hot desert, nobody needs to remind you that you need to drink. That is the most pressing and most urgent desire that you that you experience. And David says it's like that. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. Soul and body expressing the whole person, inward and outward. Longing for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I long for God. In John's Gospel, Jesus twice uses the image or the metaphor of living or fresh water. In John chapter 4 to the woman at the well in Samaria, and in John chapter 7 to the crowds at the feast in Jerusalem. And in John chapter 7, John, um, the gospel writer, explains that when Jesus uses the image of water, he is speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
And so in principle, when David is longing for God, David is ultimately longing for the personal presence of God the Holy Spirit in his heart. David might not have been able to express it like that, but that is ultimately what he's, he's longing for. That's his desire. And it leads straight on to his delight, verses 2 to 4. So he says, verse 2, I've seen you in the sanctuary, that is in the tabernacle, what would later be the temple, and I have beheld your power and your glory. And that's a very strange thing to say, because if you went into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, or later into the temple, the one thing you wouldn't see was an image of God. God's invisibility is, 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 is there. You can't see the God of Israel. You went into any other temple of any other religion, of course you see an image of the God, but you don't in, in Jerusalem. So you, you probably know that the, the Roman emperor, sorry, the Roman general Titus, when he went into the Holy of Holies in AD 70, he was bemused that there wasn't an image there. He said these people must be atheists because there isn't a God there. So what does David mean by saying, I've, I've, I've seen you, I've beheld your power and your glory? What would you see if you went into the, the tabernacle? The answer is that there's, there's two things you'd, um, as it were, see, although one of them is something you'd hear. You would see sacrifices for sin and for sinners, and you'd hear words of the covenant. And if you were allowed into the very inner bit, you'd see a box, the so-called ark, the box, in which the Ten Commandments were written. And above the box, you'd see a seat they called the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat, you'd see an image of, of, of angels, cherubim with wings. In other words, you'd, 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 when David is saying, I've seen your power and your glory, he's saying, I've, I've, I've experienced all that it's possible for a human being to experience of the, of the invisible God in his age. I know what it is to be brought into relationship with God by sacrifice. I know what it is to be in relationship with God through covenant. I've beheld your power and your glory. It's a wonderful thing. And then in verse 3, he says something which is right at the heart of the psalm. He says, in effect, in the sanctuary, I understood your holiness, I understood your law, but most of all, I understood your love. Because your love is better than life. And the word love is a very strong word. It means stead, it just doesn't just mean God being nice. It means something like steadfast love, or pledged love, or unfailing love, or covenant love, or promised love. And David is saying that that love that he's speaking about is better than life. And that's an extraordinary thing to say. That is a really extraordinary thing to say. Because if you think about it, life, I mean, the, the the, the opposite of life is death. What can possibly be better than life? You think of all the things that make life worth living. You think of human love and human intimacy and the delight in human relationships. You think of a good meal. You think of a lovely concert. You think of, you think of um, beauty and pleasure and enjoyment and relaxation and fun. All the things that make life worth living. What could be better than that? Answer more of that. And yet David says there is something which is better than as much of that as you could possibly have. Now, how can that be? And I think the answer is this, that everything about life, even the very best things about life, the things that we most enjoy, the things that most thrill us, the things that put a spring in our step and make us smile, every one of them comes under the shadow of death. Every one of them is shadowed by sin 
and death and mortality and frustration and aging and sickness. You go to a wedding, young couple, very happy, wonderfully in love, get married, and you say to yourself, the shadow of death hangs even over that. And one day one of them may stand weeping at the grave of the other. Everything in life, even the very best things in life, are shadowed by death. And so David is saying there is something better than life under the sun, life on earth. And that is the covenant love of God. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, if God is in covenant with me, if God has reached out his hand and gripped my hand, if God has placed himself in relationship with me, then what he has done is he has guaranteed to me not just the life of this age with its ups and downs and its joys and sorrows, he has guaranteed to me the life of the age to come. And if I have his steadfast love, if I have the assurance of his love now in this age, I have the assurance of what the Bible calls eternal life, the life of the age to come. And that's why it's better. John Calvin says of this verse 3, he says, On this account the Lord's people, however severely they may suffer from poverty or the violence of human wrongs or hunger and thirst, or the many troubles and anxieties of life, however much. And of course, in a gathering this size, if we told our stories, there would be all sorts of troubles, all sorts of stories of troubles and anxieties and sorrows and pressures. And Calvin says, however much that's the case, they may be happy notwithstanding, for it is well with them, in the best sense of the term, when God is their friend. Isn't that marvelous? It is well with them. Think of that lovely old hymn that we sometimes sing, when peace like a river attends all my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my path you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's what David says, it is well with my soul, even though I'm in the desert, because God is my friend. His covenant love is better than life. And therefore, he says, my lips will glorify you. I'll praise you. I'll, I'll tell people how marvelous you are as long as I live. And in your name, I'll lift up my hands, the traditional posture for prayer, standing with the empty palms uppermost, dependent on him, because he's pledged himself to me. I'm going to do that. And that's David's delight. And it leads straight on to David's joy in verses 5 to 8. So verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied not just with water, but with the richest of foods. That is, with a banquet. Um, a few weeks ago, some friends of ours took me and Carolyn out to the most marvelous meal. It was in a very smart London club. And uh, let me just tell you about it so you can get used to envy. Um, <laughs> so so, so we, it was black time we turned up at this smart club and um, we were given pink champagne and we sipped a bit of that and then we sat down with our hosts and there was a starter a sort of pre-starter which was delicious and there was the first wine well I suppose with the champagne it was the second wine and then after the, after the pre-starter some opera singers from Glyndebourne I mean there were only about a hundred people in the room sang these, these opera arias to us and it was just marvellous so then when they finished their arias, we had the, the starter starter uh, with another wine. And so we drank that and, and had the next starter. And that was delicious. And then these opera singers sang us some more arias. 
And then they sat down. And then we had the beef course, and it really was beef. It was not horse meat. It was really <laughs> seriously good beef with, a, with another wine. And, and, then, and then the opera singer sang us some more arias. And then we had a dessert with a dessert wine. Um, and then we had coffee and um, went home. It was good. <laughs> I commend to you having friends like that. And what David is saying is, in, in verse 5, he's saying that, that if I have God as my friend, then ultimately that is going to be my experience. And he says it in the desert. He says it when he's not enjoying it. He says it because one day that's going to be his experience. And therefore he's going to praise. And his praise continues in his joy, verse 6, in his, on his bed. And that vivid expression, the watches of the night... And that expression, the watches of the night, expresses the slowness with which a night goes past when you're wakeful. You know that feeling you can't sleep, you're full of anxiety or pain, and the night seems so long. And David says that even then, in the darkness, I remember you, I think of you. Verse 7, you are my help. And I'm going to sing in the shadow of your wings. And I think he's thinking of the wings of the cherubim above the mercy seat. That is the place of safety, the place, as it were, where sin is atoned for, the place where I can be right with God. And verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Just look at that in verse 8. That word cling is a very strong word. It's the word that's used in Genesis 2 of intimacy in marriage, a cleaving. It's a word that's used in Deuteronomy of tenacious loyalty to God, clinging or cleaving. It's a word that's used in the book of Ruth, of Ruth clinging to Naomi. And David says, I cling to you. It's not surprising, is it, in the desert? God is his only hope, and he clings to him. But notice what he says in the, in the other half of verse 8. He says, your right hand upholds me. And what David is saying is this. Notice the two sides of this. He's saying, I cling to you, and your right hand upholds me. And David is saying that ultimately his safety rests not on how much he clings to God, but on the strength of God's right hand upholding him. Here's a little illustration I often use. If you've ever taken a toddler just walking over a road, you don't let the toddler hold your hand. You grip them by the wrist. If the safety of the toddler crossing the road depended on them holding your hand, they would never be safe. Their safety depends on your grip. You know, I used to do this with well, our three sons and our daughter. Again and again and again, they'd fall over. You just yank them up, just lift them up, because you've got your, your, your hand around their, their, around their wrist. And David is saying, ultimately, my safety does not depend on how strongly I cling to you. Ultimately, it rests on your right hand upholding me. And that's really good news. So there is David's joy even in the night. And then in verses 9 and 10, we have David's assurance. Those who seek my life. And for the first time in verse 9, we, we, we know explicitly that the reason David is in the desert is that there are people seeking his life. Whether it's Saul and his army in those early years, whether it's Absalom in his army, his army in those later years, there are people seeking David's life. And David says, I'm confident that they will be destroyed. They'll go down. And he uses three images of, of disempowerment. They'll go down to the depths of the earth, to Sheol, the place of the dead. They'll be given over to the sword. They'll die in battle. And they'll become food for jackals. And the jackals are the final scavengers. 
When a when 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 a um, when when something dies in the in the in the, in the desert, the, the first predators come and take their bit, and then when all the predators are taking their bit, the jackals are the last ones. So to be food for jackals means absolutely no honour in death. It means it means there's no burial at any point. The jackals will just pick away the last bits of meat off their bones. And David is saying, that's what's going to happen to my enemies. Now, we mustn't be um, all namby-pamby and wet and liberal about this and say, oh dear, don't like that. That's what we do, isn't it? You know, the Westerners say, oh dear, I don't like that. You know, food for me, oh dear, it sounds nasty. Just be real. We need to get real. It's either David or them. Either David's vindicated or, 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 or David dies and, and, and they win. It's either one or the other. And the price of David's, of David's vindication is their defeat. We need to be quite clear about that. And their defeat is good news, as we shall see. Now David is confident that one day that's what's going to happen. He's going to be vindicated. So there's his prayer. We'll come back to verse 11 in just a moment. Now the question is this. What do you do with a psalm like this? When I read a psalm like this, and I think to myself, I I ought to be learning to pray the psalms. The psalms are there in the Bible in order for me to learn to pray them. If I take this prayer, this psalm, I read Psalm 63, and I think I'm going to try and pray it. Do you know, I, I don't know about you, but I find it very discouraging. Because I find myself saying to myself something like this. First one, David delighted in the Lord. He really delighted in God. He loved, he loved God like nothing else in the world. He really loved God. Do I love God like that? I know I ought to, but I don't. So I feel a bit discouraged by that. And then and then David's desire, David longed for God more than anything else. Sorry, his delight, he delighted in God more than anything else. And I say to myself, do I delight in God more than anything else? And I say, well, I, I know I ought to, and I'm in church, and I mean, I'm preaching. I'm, I certainly ought to, but I, but I don't. So I feel a bit discouraged. And then David rejoiced even in the night, even in the dark times. And I think, do I rejoice even in the night and the dark times? And I think, mostly not, if I'm honest. And then I think, well, David was quite confident he was going to win and all his enemies were going to lose. And I think, well, I'm not sure that I am so sure about that. It feels rather cocky if I say that. And so I could preach it to you like this. I could say, now, come on, guys, do you, de- do, do, you, do, you, do you desire God more than anything else in the world? You don't? Well, you jolly well ought to. Try a bit harder. Do you delight in God more than anything else in the world? You don't, do you? Well, you try a bit harder. Do you rejoice even in the dark nights? Well, look at David. He did. Try a bit harder. Follow his example. Are you sure you're going to win in the end? You are? Cocky. It doesn't work, does it? It just doesn't work. So look at verse 11, and verse 11, I think, will be the key that will help us to, to see how to make this into our prayer. Verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. That's the first thing. And that reminds us that the singer here is not a private individual. It is David the king. And therefore, second, all who swear by God's name will praise him. And that's where we come in. The king's people will praise God. And the mouths of liars will be silenced. That is, the enemies who will not repent. John Calvin again says, The deliverance which David received had not been extended to him as a private person, but the welfare of the whole church was concerned in it, as that of the body 
in the safety of the head. In other words, if David wins, David's people win. If the Welsh team win, Wales win. Oh, how I wish I was Welsh. Just today. So this song, this prayer, is David's prayer, and David is the king. And David sings the Psalms with the voice of prophecy. Peter calls him in Acts chapter 2 a, a, a prophet. And, and the prophets prophesied, they spoke by the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ. And therefore, ask yourself the question, what would it have meant for Jesus of Nazareth to sing this psalm? As no doubt he did in synagogue Sabbath, on some of the Sabbaths. And no doubt he did on his own. What would it have meant for him? Let's take it again, his desire. Every moment of his life, Jesus of Nazareth longed for fellowship with his father. Literally in the desert during his temptations, metaphorically in the desert all his earthly life, unrecognized as king, longing for fellowship with, with, with his father, spending hours in prayer whenever he could. Jesus' delight. Every moment of his life he delighted in the promises of his father. Every moment of his life he loved his father. He delighted in that. And he rejoiced in the darkness. In Luke chapter 10, at a time when things were really difficult and people were rejecting him, Jesus says in Luke 10, I praise you. Uh, uh, Luke says, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Even when things were going badly, Jesus rejoiced. Even in the dark nights, Jesus rejoiced in his Father. And Jesus was sure of final vindication. He says, the day is going to come when you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The day is going to come when the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory. One day I will be vindicated. One day those who persist in being enemies will be destroyed. So friends, here's the good news, and this is marvelous news. I read this psalm and I don't think um, David desired God, I ought to desire God, and I just need to try harder. I thank God that there was one man who desired God with all his heart. I don't read this and think David delighted in God and I need to try harder to delight in God. I read this psalm and I think, isn't it wonderful that there was a man who delighted in God? I don't read this psalm and think David rejoiced even on the dark nights and I need to try and rejoice even in the dark nights. I think how marvelous that there was one who did that on my behalf. And there was one man who was confident because he was God's king that one day he would be vindicated. And someone has said that this psalm is to remind us that our happiness and glory depend entirely on Christ. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you are a real Christian, God has reached out his hand to you and, 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 and you have trusted in Christ and you belong to Christ, all of this is yours. The Lord Jesus desires God on your behalf. The Lord Jesus delights in God on your behalf. The Lord Jesus rejoices in God on your behalf. The Lord Jesus is confident of his final, final victory on your behalf. And as you and I begin to pray this prayer, we do it as men and women in Christ. It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. I've been reading a lovely book by one of the Puritans called Richard Sibbs. It's called The Bruised Reed. 
terrific little book. It's a short little book. You, you, you can get it. It's quite cheap. And it's got gold on every page. It's absolutely marvelous. And one of the things that Sib says is this. He says, if a man or woman has a real spark of genuine grace in their heart, if they're a real Christian, it doesn't matter how pathetic they are. It doesn't matter how weak they are. It doesn't matter how much they stumble. It doesn't matter how, how, how feebly they trust. It doesn't matter how easily they get discouraged. It doesn't matter how pathetic they are. The devil will never be able to blow that out. And he uses that image in Isaiah of, 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 that's, that's, that's quoted of Jesus in Matthew of, of, of not blowing out a sputtering candle. And Sibs has this lovely thing. He says, he says sometimes the devil looks at a pathetic Christian. And I feel like this so, so often. He looks at a pathetic Christian and he sees this, this like a sort of candle which is scarcely a light. And he thinks I can easily blow that out. And so he, he, as it were, goes to blow it out, like that. And to his immense frustration, he finds that if that is a spark of grace from God, if that is real spiritual life from God, he cannot blow it out, and one day it's going to burst into flame. Isn't that a marvelous thing? And this psalm is a wonderful assurance that if you and I are in Christ, all these things begin to be ours by the Spirit of Christ. And my prayer is that whatever struggles and anxieties you and I are facing. I've had quite a tough week. I'm facing quite an anxious week. And I guess a number of us here will, 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 will have that sort of thing in all sorts of different ways. And my prayer is that you and I, as we look at this psalm and we begin to make it our own as men and women in Christ, that we will be filled with a deep gladness to be a Christian. And we will, we'll be, we, we, we will say again, your love is better than life. And that cuts two ways. That cuts for those, those of us who are, are struggling and, and, and for whom things are really challenging. Just the encouragement that if the steadfast love of God towards you in Christ is, is yours, however weak you are, eternal life will be yours. But it also cuts the other way for those of us who actually are young, fit, healthy, feel that we're immortal and um, everything's going well with us. And there may be some of us here like that. If you're like that, this psalm is a reminder that everything that at the moment delights you and makes you feel good is shadowed by death and one day you will lose it all. And that, that, that until and unless you have the love of God in Christ, you have nothing. And if you're not a Christian believer, I want to say to you what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian believer. Don't rest until you have a real trust in Christ. And if you are a Christian believer, I want to say to you, as I say to myself, preach to yourself, God's love, the Father's love for us in Christ is better than life. Let's be quiet uh, for a moment of quiet, and then I'll pray and hand back to Simon. God, our Father, we thank you for the covenant, steadfast, unfailing, promised love 
held out to us in Christ. We praise you that that is offered to any and all who will trust in him. Those of us who have come to know that love, we thank you for it. We thank you that it is better than life itself. And we ask that something of that assurance might come home to us afresh today and in the times of darkness and struggle. And those of us who are lured and seduced by the wonderful things of this life, we pray that our hearts might be fixed on what your steadfast love promises us in the life of the age to come. In Jesus' name, amen.